you should have a Bible and you should open it to Revelation 19. Revelation chapter 19. Next Sunday, we will pray. The next Sunday is the first Sunday of the year, Advent. And we're going to pray together this prayer. And then you're encouraged to pray it every day of the week, this first prayer of Advent. Here's what we're going to pray. Listen, Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. The season of Advent is coming, and it's a season of waiting. We try and inhabit the space and wait to celebrate something that happened in the past. We wait to celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ in Advent. But Advent is also a season, it's a attention there because it reminds us we are currently waiting for something in the future. That would be the return of King Jesus as we pray in this prayer to come and judge. Come and judge. In our passage this morning, I hope to show you, even as the text opens my own eyes, that we see together there's no time to waste in making ready for his second coming. When Christ comes again, no one will escape his piercing gaze. So on this Christ the King Sunday, let me ask you this morning, who is your king? Or maybe what is your king? Who or what has your allegiance? Who or what do you follow? Who is your king? Who or what are you willing to? to suffer, to have? Who or what gives you a sense of identity and purpose and direction in your life? It's by answering questions like these that we understand personally, am I ready for the coming of Christ? Am I ready? And I don't want to sound like I'm exaggerating, but the stakes could not be higher. Eternal destiny hangs in the balance. So I would hope that you would tune in as we look at Revelation 19. I'm going to begin in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The person given this vision, the ability to see what will unfold is John, the apostle. And time prohibits us from doing a complete overview of the book of Revelation. And listen, I am fully aware that people tend to have a history with the book of Revelation or very strong opinions about the book of Revelation. And maybe you've been taught to understand the book in various ways. As you look at the last book of Scripture, some of us sitting here are scared by Revelation. And so when it comes up in our reading plan, we don't know what to do with it. Maybe we even skip it. But what I want to say just as an overview is to remind you that this book, Revelation, is a letter. 
and it was written to, given to John, Jesus was speaking through him to churches in real time and real space. And this message from Jesus was given for encouragement, to encourage these churches, to encourage these churches that were suffering because they believed in Jesus Christ. And they had aligned their life with King Jesus. It was a message of encouragement. And here was the encouragement. King Jesus is currently enthroned over all things. And King Jesus is coming again to judge all things. Live your life accordingly. That's the encouragement of the book of Revelation. In the flow of Revelation, John is given a vision of the heavens opening up. He's caught up in the spirit. He sees the heavens open. This is the same way Ezekiel's prophecy begins. Ezekiel 1.1, he sees the heavens opening up. And when that happens, it's a signal there in Ezekiel and here in Revelation. It's a signal of coming judgment. This isn't the first time in the book of Revelation that the heavens have opened In Revelation 4.1, 11.19, 15.5, the heavens open and there is judgment, judgment coming. So John here in verse chapter 19, he's given a vision of the final advent, of Christ's second coming. And there's some clues in the text to help us realize this is the end. My kids, when they watched movies and they're younger and it was the end of the movie, they would always ask, Is this the the end? Like, is it really coming to an end? Well, this is the the end here. When Jesus comes to judge and then to restore all that is redeemed and to make new. This is what John is seeing. And I'll give it away. Jesus is the one on the horse. He's the one riding the horse. And he comes on a white horse. He's exchanged the donkey for a majestic stallion. In John's day, after Caesar, the emperor of the world, after he won a victory, he would ride into Rome. Guess what he would ride on? A horse, not just a horse. What kind of horse? What color was it? A white horse. And it would be a signal to everyone, Caesar has won. He has victory. That's part of what's being communicated here. When Jesus comes riding in on a white horse, it's not Jesus coming to see if he can get the upper hand and engage in a battle and maybe try to win and see who can take over. It is Jesus already victorious coming. There's no question about who will win. Christ rides in victory. The war is already over at the cross, through the empty tomb, by his ascension to the throne, Satan, darkness, death, has been destroyed, and Christ comes to bring all of that to its glorious conclusion. Revelation, in particular, as a letter, when it speaks of white with Jesus, it signifies his vindication of his church and his people. He comes to lift up those who have suffered and those who have stood firm for him. When Jesus comes again, those who are his, those who have suffered for his name. Now, listen, we can look across the world and say, the Christians over there suffer more than we suffered. 
And we kind of look through those lenses. But listen, Jesus knows your suffering for his name. He knows the suffering you go through. Maybe a relationship you have is in tension or even breaking apart because you stand for Christ. Maybe work is hard. It's a hard environment because you stand for Jesus. He knows your suffering and those who suffer for his name, he will lift up. He will vindicate. And those who have stood against him and his people, he will put down. And this writer, he is called faithful and true. These aren't just what Jesus is like, although he is like this. These are, it's who he is. He is the faithful one. He is the truth. In a world that lacks faithfulness, and in a world that is really confused about truth, knowing the one who is faithful, knowing the one, personally knowing the one who is true, it's refreshing. And in the chaos, it gives us a sense of stability. Jesus is faith. He is true. I mean, we live in a world wrecked by a lack of faithfulness. Leaders lie, and they let us down. A spouse can break a promise. Do you have any flaky friends? Our friends can flake when we need them. How about this? We sometimes personally struggle with faithfulness. Coming through on what we say we will do. How about this? Do you ever conceal the truth with like half lies? Or you don't just give all the info just to try to protect yourself. We can't own the name faithful the way Jesus does. And we can't own the name true the way Jesus does. But he is the one by name by right, by reputation, who is faithful. Jesus Christ never flakes. He never lies. He never cheats. He, he does not trick you with misinformation or tr- speak in a roundabout way with miscommunication. He is clear. He speaks reality. And when he makes a promise, when he gives his word, he comes through. Christian sitting here in the room, if you know Christ, you know the one that comes through, that never fails on a promise. How about this? The gospels bear witness to this truth. Jesus comes. He says, I've come to serve and seek and save the lost. I will forgive your sins. It's a promise. And not even a cross or a grave would keep him from keeping his promise. And the same faithful one said, I am coming again. Does Jesus ever fail to keep his promise? Someone say, no. He never fails. And it's crucial that Jesus bear these names, for he's coming for a purpose in righteousness to judge and make war. Verse 11 says, Righteousness is the the quality of being exactly right according to God's standards. Righteousness. And he's coming in that way to judge in that way according to God's standards. And he's coming to judge and make war. Who can be trusted to judge? Who can be trusted to see the world, to see individuals and decide righteous, 
unrighteous. Who can look at all the upheaval in the world, cut through all the noise, see through all the opinions and propagandas, the million broadcasts, and say, righteous, unrighteous. Who can be trusted to do that? Only the one who is faithful and true and who judges with righteousness. And this is what Jesus comes to do, to make a right judgment. So a question you should ask, I would encourage you to ask, am I right with God? What would Jesus say about me? Righteous, unrighteous. The judgment is described as making war. War is in focus right now. There are wars happening, rumors of war, the threat of war. There are also lots of emotions around these wars, rightly so, and opinions about them. And it can be shocking when we read, Jesus the King comes to make war. And you're thinking, like, is that what I want to tell my neighbors? Like, you sh- he's coming to make war. It can shock us. But what we have to realize is the kind of war that Jesus comes to wage. It's not a war like we would war. It's not for land or resources. It's not against the innocent. His war is for righteousness and against sin, against rebellion, against his kingdom. And in his war, no innocent person will be consumed. Verse 12. Here comes the king, and we get to see a little bit what he looks like. We'll move a little quicker through the rest of these verses. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Eyes like a flame, it shows us this piercing gaze that Jesus has. He can see through it all. No one can escape his gaze. No sinful, corrupt heart can hide from Jesus. Not even behind the appearance of righteousness. Not even behind the attempts at good works. Jesus will see all as it truly is. That's His eyes are like fire. Everything is exposed before the Lamb, who is an all-consuming fire. He also wears diadems, a crown. Remember the children, a crown, a king has a crown. Well, Jesus has these diadems. Diadems are a sign of royalty, superiority, sovereignty, power. In Isaiah 62, verse 3, it tells us that God's king will have a crown of diadems. And then we, this isn't the first time in Revelation you read of diadems. In chapter 12, verse 3, and chapter 13, verse 1, there's two individuals or two powers that have diadems, but it's limited. They have seven and ten. It's Satan and his instrument of evil. They are pretenders. And they dress the part. They try to look like royalty, but they are pretenders, and their power is limited. That's why they have a number. Seven diadems, they're limited. But Jesus comes in his crown, has this innumerable amount of diadems. He is the true king, wearing God's crown. He also has a name that is written that no one knows. Revelation, more than any other book in the New Testament, is influenced and alludes to and references the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, to know someone's name is to be able to control them, 
to exert influence over them, to get the upper hand. Well, Jesus, his name is concealed. No one, when he comes, no one will be able to influence him, to control him, to sway him. He won't be intimidated. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. We know in the New Testament, though, he reveals his name. He reveals his name to those who are given faith to see him and know him. He says, like, you can call me friend. I'm your savior. And so he can reveal his name to us. Verse 13, we get to see a little bit of what he's wearing. He is clothed clothed in a robe dripped in blood. That's graphic. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The war in this vision, it hasn't even begun. And this final last war, we're waiting for it, hasn't begun. But here comes the king and his robe is drenched already in the blood of his enemies. It's just another symbolic sign that Jesus will not lose. Evil will be defeated. He is victorious. He already has the blood on his robes. It's like he's cut through the, the enemy line and has already won. That's what he wears when he comes. The one who has an unknown name is called the Word of God here. John uses the Word of God, this name in his gospel, in the beginning of his gospel, to communicate that Jesus is... God from God, true God from true God, light from light. He is God incarnate in the flesh. And here he comes to accomplish this work of judgment. The word of God has been promised, and now the word of God in a person, Jesus, comes to accomplish it. Does that make sense? He is coming to accomplish the word of God as God. Although he alone is enough to ensure victory, does Jesus ride alone? Look at the text, verse 14. Does Jesus ride alone? It's not a trick question. Does Jesus ride alone? No, he has an army with him. Does he need an army? No, he doesn't. But he comes, it says, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. This is a pure and purified, righteous army, just like their champion, that leads them to battle. They ride on white horses. What does that mean, church? What does it mean? Victory. They are riding just like King Jesus, and it's as if they've already won. That's a, that's a confidence boost, right? When your king gives you a white horse and he says, follow me, and he's wearing a robe drenched in the blood of your enemies. It's like, okay, I can follow this guy. Sounds like we're gonna win. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's intense. Here, in just in these, this verse, we see allusions to Isaiah 11. 
Isaiah 49, Isaiah 63, and Psalm 2, all kind of packed in here. I'll just share a little bit about Isaiah 63 for, for time's sake. In Isaiah 63, the prophet tells God's people the king is coming, and he's bringing the kingdom of God with him. And it happens in Isaiah 63, the prophet says, when he comes, he will be dressed in crimson. He'll be dressed in crimson. And he comes, it says in Isaiah 63, to trod the enemies in the winepress of God's fury. It's like, uh, I won't say that right this second, but he comes to vindicate, in Isaiah 63, when the king comes to vindicate God's name, God's holiness, God's glory, God's reputation, and God's people. That's what he's coming to do, to lift them up. And he is called the avenger, and Isaiah 63 is God. That's who's coming. But here in John, in the Revelation, it's clarified even sharper. It is Jesus, the word of God. God in the flesh coming. No will escape. Every nation will be targeted. Every vestige of evil and unrighteousness will be crushed like a grape in a wine press. I've never done that before. But the imagery that is crush a grape in a wine press, the imagery is just destruction, gone. I don't want to sound like I'm exaggerating, but the stakes could not be higher. This is what's happening as King Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. Your eternal destiny is hanging in the balance here. Verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, this is the verse I use to justify my tattoos, because Jesus. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm just kidding, I don't do that, but... This is a sovereign title of divinity, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It comes from Daniel chapter 4. And it's used there, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God comes against world powers. And who wins? God wins. That's the same thing being said here. Divinity is coming and God will win. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's just like packed in here. Who is going to win? Jesus. That's what John sees. So this is his vision. He's given King Jesus coming to conquer. He's going to have victory. There's going to be this wine press of fury. Everyone will be consumed. That is unrighteousness. Everything that is unrighteous will be consumed. No one will escape the rider and his army. Now I want to read the rest of the passage, 17 to 21. And I want you to look at the text with me. Look down at your scriptures and notice it seems like something is missing. A war is about to break out. Look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. This is allusions to Ezekiel 39. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Come and feast. Verse 19, and I saw. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make a war. So they have intentions to make a war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet 
who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. They were judged. And the rest were slain. They were judged by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds gorged, were gorged with their flesh. What's missing here? There's a vision that a war is coming and then there's no vision of the actual war, the battle. King Jesus is coming to make war. It's over. Birds gather and feast on the enemies who lay slain. He does not receive a vision of the battle. All he sees is the aftermath of Jesus' righteous judgment. Here comes the king. Birds come and feast on the supper of God's victory. Then John, he sees the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against Jesus. What's fascinating here is the word gathered is in the passive voice. That means they are gathered. The beast and all minions of unrighteousness are gathered. They think they're acting in autonomy. They think they're doing this on their own, gathering against Jesus, but it is Jesus in all of his sovereignty, gathering his enemies to judge them. That's how absolute this victory is. He gathers them. And then, though they gather to make war, there is no war that John sees. There's only the execution of the sentencing for the beast, the prophet, and those who wear the mark and worship the image. That's a lot right there, the beast and the prophet. Who are these people? What about the mark? What does that mean? Do do I have the mark? What's the mark? Well, these are good questions. I'm going to answer them as quickly as I can and probably leave some to be desired for you to answer on your own. The first time the beast appears in Revelation is in Revelation 13. And John is given a Daniel 7-like vision. And he sees this beast, John sees this beast come out of the abyss. And the beast is described as a, a, like a leopard, lion, bear combo. A vicious beast who has all of these evil qualities. In Daniel 7, Daniel sees the same thing. But he sees four beasts. One looks like a lion, one looks like a leopard, one looks like a bear, and the fourth is horned. And in Revelation 13, the first beast that John sees comes up and is like those first three beasts combined. Then he sees another one who we learn is the prophet, and he's described as horned. So if we want to understand that, we've got to know what's going on in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, the beasts represent world powers, world kings that set themselves against God and God's people. And in Daniel 7, and in that prophecy is fulfilled, God wins. So as we think about the beast in Revelation, the prophet, I'm of the opinion that the beast is symbolic. It's symbolic for world powers, for false kings, for pretenders who set themselves against God and God's people. And the prophet is also symbolic. I don't think we can point to an individual. The prophet is anyone who promotes that way, the way of the world as opposed to the way of Christ. That's what I think is going on. Which leads us to the mark. What is the mark? 
Well, I also think the mark is symbolic. I don't think it's like a tattoo you can wear or something you can take into your body. I think the mark is the world's approval of you. Like he is with us. Look at his life. He is with us. And you bear that mark. And you have that mark because you worship the world, the created things rather than the creator. I don't think it's visible because in Revelation there's another mark. We're told that Jesus marks his own. He gives them a name. Even in Revelation 22, the name is on the forehead. Is that right? Yeah, Revelation 22. That we're told that when we come to Jesus, he will know we belong to him because we all have a name written on our heads. And that's symbolic for Jesus knows his own. And when he calls his sheep, they hear his voice and they come to him. And then we will see his face. What a glorious day. So those who are in Christ and know him as king will escape the judgment of the broken world, the rebellious promoters of the world, and those who have followed the world and worshiped the world rather than the king Jesus. This is the vision John was given when the heavens opened and when an angel stood in the sun. It's a vision of the glorious king who wins his battle and vindicates his people. It's a vision of the coming, all-consuming judgment of God against Darkness, sin, and death. I don't want to sound like I'm exaggerating, but the stakes are pretty high here. And the only way, the only way you can be ready for Christ's second advent is by the proper response to his first. So I want to ask myself, when Christ returns, where will I be? And I want to encourage you to ask the same question. There are two places you will be. There are two places that I could possibly be. Either marked by the world, approved by the world, in love with the world, following the world, given to sin, living in unrighteousness, broken in my sin, destined to death. I will either be in the army set against Christ, gathered together by him for judgment. That's one place I could be. Or the other place is I will be following my king to victory. This army of heaven, who, who is that? We know that when Christ rides, he rides with angelic and angelic hosts. This is from Matthew 13 and 2 Thessalonians 1. But in Revelation, in the letter of Revelation, we learn that it won't just be angels because throughout Revelation in chapter 3, 4, and verse 4, 5, and verse 18, chapter 4, verse 4, chapter 6, 11, and chapter 7, 9 through 14, it is the saints of God that are described as wearing white linens and white garments. Except for one exception in the book of Revelation, every time someone is described as wearing white, it is the saints. The chosen ones, the called out ones, those who have the grace of God and have believed in Christ, they make up his army. So I will either ride against Jesus or I will ride with him. Those are the two places. I will either receive his judgment or that judgment will have already passed and I will be with him as a witness that he is the king. 
So these are the two positions, and your response to Christ's first coming determines your position at his second. So let me ask you some questions. We're coming to the end, so if you could just, if you're drifting, come back. Let me ask you, who are you following right now? Who are you following right now? How do I know who I'm following? Oh, here's some more question. Who guides your ethical decisions? Who guides you to understand right from wrong? Who helps you understand suffering and difficulty in the world? Who guides the way you treat your spouse? Or the way you treat your children? Or children, the way you treat your parents? Who are you following in those relationships? How about this? Who has priority on your calendar? Or what has priority on your calendar? I could ask more probing questions, but you get it. Is King Jesus who you're following, or are you following yourself or something else? How about this question? Whose mark do you bear? When someone looks into your life, how would they know who you are and what you belong to? Does consumerism, the pursuit of ease, or even fear define who you are? Or is your life marked by the way of Jesus, which looks like generosity, the pursuit of holiness, prayer, and peace, even in difficulty? Let me ask you this. Who, are, who or what are you willing to suffer for? Suffer to have. When this letter was given to the churches, they were experiencing suffering. And some of them were enduring some of them were saying, you know what, I'm out. And they wanted to skip the suffering, and so they were leaving Jesus. Will you suffer for Christ? Would you suffer the loss of a job, ridicule from friends or neighbors, a poor reputation for the glory of Jesus? Or would you rather give up suffering with your immortal soul? These are challenging questions, and they are meant to challenge you and me together to stir us up towards endurance in this season of waiting that's often marked by trial and suffering and temptation. King Jesus is coming. Live accordingly. But listen, soldiers of Christ, maybe you're here and you're just checking Jesus out. It is not our ability to follow that secures our ranks in the army. It's not my ability at good works or living in holiness that Jesus says, you know what? Yeah, Mark. It's not my power that helps me walk through suffering and trial for the name of Jesus. It is the blood and only the blood of Jesus that secures my position in the end. You see, I was, I was an enemy of God. Ephesians 2, 2, 2, I was lost in sin, dead in my trespasses, covered and shrouded in darkness, following the course of the world. My blood was on the king's robes, and my defeat was imminent. But Jesus came. Not on a horse, but in a womb. And the king of kings, he was born in obscurity, in veiled glory in a manger. And he came to walk in this world that's swayed by darkness, 
influenced by sin, defined by death. He came to defeat my sin by being a servant. And he removed my guilty blood from his robes by shedding his blood on the cross. And he offers you that same gift, his blood in exchange for yours. Your redemption in exchange for your judgment. Your victory in exchange for defeat. This is who our king comes, who our king is. And when he comes, he brings redemption, even as he brings judgment. Last thing I'm going to say is the birds, they were going to feast on me. In that battlefield, I was going to be the supper of God's judgment. And if you resonate with this, you too were going to be that. But now with faith, by faith alone, by believing this good news, this exchange, Jesus' blood for mine, by faith, I'm invited to a different meal. The wedding supper of the Lamb. Holy communion with God. The supper of God's redemption. For my sins, you're invited to. And your neighbors, this message is for them. That they too could know victory in Jesus and sit and have a meal with him. Repent of your sins, believe the good news, and you too will have a place in the army and a place at the table. And by the Spirit, you will be strengthened day by day. As we wait for his coming, you will be strengthened to live by faith. Would you pray with me? Lord, in your mercy, we just ask that you would hear us now. Calling out to you, each individual in this room, calling out to you, knowing we fail to be faithful, knowing we fail to be true, knowing we fail to follow you always in every moment, knowing we're often tempted by the world, we're calling out to you, King Jesus. Refresh our faith. Refresh our conviction in the cross and wash us afresh in your blood. In Jesus' name.